Let me introduce you to uh, some of my friends here today. Uh, Dana Dorsey serves on our church board. So yay, Dana, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Uh, Denise Wilson serves on all, all the boards. <laughs> School, uh, rescue mission, all of it. Now, to be clear, she's the vice president of everything. She's my boss, so please treat her well today. And then we have Howard Frazier, who serves on our Rancho United board, which is the board that governs all the Rancho boards, church, school, and rescue mission. All right, so we're here for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, we are starting a brand new series called Different, and it is the strange way of Jesus. And we're focusing on humility today, how we can learn from one another in humility. It is also the last Sunday of um, Black History Month. And so we've been celebrating that here on Sundays, been celebrating it online through church and school. And so um, here we have leaders in our congregation who have an experience that we can all learn from. And we're going to talk about that today because as a church, we believe that um, diversity is really a hallmark of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught a lot about diversity. He practiced diversity in so many powerful ways. And so what happens when a, a congregation, a community of faith, um, doesn't really get to enjoy diversity. If, if it's a homogenous group that isn't trying to cross kind of the lines of ethnic backgrounds or other, um, other forms of different experiences, what's lost when a church isn't diverse? Well, Scott, uh, if I may go first. Um, after all, I'm from out of town. You uh, are, I've heard. Yes. <laughs> speak a little funny. As, yes, from well, we speak funny. You're normal. We, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm from Hemet. Yes. So. <laughs> You said that, not me. All right. <laughs> well, what, what happens, Scott, to, to answer your question, what happens when a church uh, is not diverse, does not embrace diversity? I think it, it makes for a weak church, makes for an immature church. It's a church that's not fulfilling our commandment to love the neighbor. It's not a Christ-filled church. And that's sad to say, but it is true. We are called upon, I think, as people of faith uh, to be different in that regard, to know each other, to know and love our neighbor. Now, I mean, it's perfectly understandable why church communities tend to be homogenous because church and faith is oftentimes wrapped up in family. It's a cultural experience as well. So it's understandable why the natural tendency is for um, a church of really any faith, the congregation of any faith to kind of stick to sameness, right? But you mentioned Jesus' call to love our neighbor. And when Jesus defined what it means to love our neighbor, he defined it as cross-cultural diversity. You might know the story of the Good Samaritan. The issue with the Good Samaritan story wasn't that he was good. It was that he was a Samaritan helping out someone who was Jewish. It would be very similar to someone who was Palestinian helping someone who was Jewish today. It's just this stunning story that Jesus told of how we can love each other in a cross-cultural way. So I think that is what Jesus taught into, right? Now, on the flip side, if we're a community that wants to intentionally reach out and become more diverse, what are the advantages of that? How, how are we more mature as a church? You know, Scott, I joined the service right out of high school, and uh, I was immersed immediately into a very different community than I was experienced before. <laughs> so I went to basic training, I went to tech school with guys from every state of the union, different cultures, different backgrounds, and I learned from those perspectives. I have friends to this day from those, from those years, um, and I just matured and grew, and it made a huge difference. Uh, and who I became as a person. And I think it, it was a very beneficial experience to be exposed to 
cultures that I would have never chosen to be exposed to, but by virtue of being in the military, I didn't have a lot of choice. But it was a very much thumbs up experience for me. Absolutely, and you did have a choice to embrace that though, right? Because there are people who may be dropped into a diverse environment and they might actually resist that and resist learning. You chose to embrace it and you chose to make lifelong friends. So whether it's diversity through sort of the happenstance of life, military service in your job, um, or it's an intentional journey to say, hey, I'm, I'm a part of a church that is working toward diversity, or I'm going to get to know intentionally my neighbor who may come from a different background. That, that intentional and unintentional journey of diversity is a journey of loving our neighbor, right? I, I agree with that because you're, you're learning something that you don't know. You're learning a culture. You're learning to um, the history of someone else, and you're going to probably make a really good friend, just like you said, someone that they're still friends here today. So what we want to do is start branching out. We just want to start looking for people that don't necessarily look like us, and we want to learn, and in learning, we're learning to love, and I think that's a great advantage of diversity. So let's talk about... Black History Month, which again, we've been celebrating uh, all month long. Uh, you are leaders in our church at the board level, just pouring your experience into our, into our congregation, church, school, and rescue mission. And so what are some uh, lessons from black history that we can learn from today? I, I think there's several lessons to be learned from the black church. Uh, the important lesson, I think, the main lesson is one of community. The black church uh, had developed outside of its faith a sense of community because of its history. It had to embrace all of the former slaves. And so today, that church still embraces its community. And it does that so that it can fight for its community and for the community of all. The black church led the civil rights movement. They were led by men of faith. And they did that, it's not about politics, it's about Christ's, it's Christ's belief, justice, fairness, equality, neighborhood, community. And that is a lesson, I think, that we can learn uh, about our church, and we are doing that, I think, in this church with our Ministry of Justice. Yeah. It is fantastic. I don't know of any other church that leads in this fashion. Well, and to be honest with you, well, the black church does lead. We're, 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 yes. we're trying to follow in the footsteps of the black church who yes. has led, as you've mentioned, in the area of justice where men and women are you know, at the forefront and, and tackling the injustices of the day, not just for their own benefit or their own freedom, but for the freedoms of, of others. So the Civil Rights Act of 1964, I believe, which was led by the black church, uh, confronting the injustices and then working tirelessly at great sacrifice uh, to bring the Civil Rights Act is, is now ensuring freedoms for everybody. So you brought us a, a picture, uh, and I think we have it, um, of people on the streets led by the black church. Uh, again, men and women who are at great personal sacrifice confronting the powers of the time. And that's, you, you mentioned this earlier, that that's a diverse march. This isn't just the black church marching. This is the black church mobilizing all of us to do what's right to do what's for right. everyone. Yes. 
And, and you've got other, other thoughts as well about how the black church has led and how we can learn. You know, um, I grew up in the black church all my life from probably third or fourth grade. And our black church is like the foundation of the community. Um, that's where you get your strength. You learn about the struggles. You learn about how to live outside of the church doors when you're done. And like my friend here, we were both raised in sanctified church back then. They call them Church of God in Christ, which meant that you were going to be in church all day. And I share, <laughs> yeah. I shared before, you start with Sunday school, and then you have your church service, and then you go and eat. They have meals prepared, fried chicken, collard greens, all that good all stuff. That. And after you eat, amen, and after you eat, you go back into the sanctuary where you're staying there until it turns dark. But that's what held the community together. So we knew the Word of God. We, we lived the Word of God, but that's where we came when we were feeling our highs and our lows, when we didn't have any place to go. The church was always there in the black community. Amen. Now, the, uh, uh, all the white people here are like, we're not doing church all day. <laughs> it's like 62 minutes and we are, we are done. <laughs> I think to be, to be relevant as a church, you need to address the issues that your congregants are dealing with. And I think that was what the black church was doing. It's, it's congregants were dealing with injustice and oppression and all the things we know about from history. And so to be relevant, it has to be part of the church and part of what the pastor would speak about on Sunday morning. Absolutely. And uh, for a lot of churches, and this is no, no knock on, on churches that stick to, say, Christian doctrine, which is great, right? Christian doctrine, you teach Christian doctrine, but if it doesn't result in life change, which results in community engagement and community change, uh, you kind of have to wonder how, as you said, relevant it, it is. The black church has led in so many ways to say, hey, this gospel message, this good news could and should mean a better world. A world that is more just, not just for us, but, but for everybody, and not just for our country, but for the whole world. So thank you all very much for leading and your partnership and friendship. It means a lot. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Good stuff. Power, powerful stuff there. And um, I just love this congregation for so many reasons. But our intentional drive for diversity, not just for diversity, but for friendship and partnership and leading together and growing together and learning from one, one another just absolutely means the world. And if I may, it is different. And we're talking about this different way of Jesus, this strange way of Jesus. And the strange way of Jesus, I think, begins with humility. The strange way of Jesus is the way of humility. And, and if I just maybe, I think, a little bit honest about religious communities tend not to be humble. Religious communities tend to say, hey, we've got the right answer. We have the right doctrine. We worship the right way. And at, and at some point, it doesn't become a learning community or a diverse community. It just becomes a rigid, monolithic community. And I think Jesus taught us to do something a little different. He taught us to be humble. He taught us to be humble. The strange way of humility. Now, when we talk about humility, humility comes with a little bit of a, of a cost because humility isn't the expected way. Humility isn't necessarily what people are eager to sign up for, right? What people are eager to sign up for is how can I get to the top? How can I become better? How can I become wealthier? How can I become more powerful? That's what people sign up for. If there was a, a seminar on humility, nobody's signing up, right? You're just not. You're gonna sign up for things to get better, improve your life, improve your way, improve your health, improve your, your lot in life, improve your economy, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? That is the normal way. 
And, and really, there's nothing wrong with bettering yourself and bettering your economy and bettering your health. Nothing wrong with that. But Jesus invites us to a community, and he invites us to what he called a kingdom that is the way of humility, the way of humility, and it is strange. Now, we might think, okay, are we calling Jesus strange? That seems a little sacrilegious. The answer for this series is yes, we're calling Jesus strange. Because he called himself strange, the world around him called him strange, and it came with great consequence. Here's an example out of John chapter six. The entire chapter of John chapter six, and it's long. We're not gonna go through it all. We're gonna take little excerpts. John chapter six reveals just how strange the ministry of Jesus was and the great price he paid because of it. Here's just a couple little snippets from that chapter. Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And he kind of details what that means. Then the people begin to murmur in disagreement. This is strange, right? But Jesus says, stop complaining about what I said. And then they keep complaining about what he said. Jesus is teaching and preaching very strange, very different things. And the crowds started to murmur. They started to grumble. They started to complain. So Jesus goes on. He says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me has eternal life. And so he's kind of dealing with this doctrine of, of him being the son of God, him being the fullness of God, and about people needing to believe in Jesus to really live, right? And that creates a whole other sort of strange doctrine and strange behavior and consequences. Then the people begin arguing with each other about what he meant. Many of his disciples says, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? This is weird stuff. Now, Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, does this offend you? At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Again, these are just snippets out of John chapter six, highlighting just how strange the ministry of Jesus really was. Strange, different, confusing, at times made no sense, unconventional. You can call the ministry of Jesus even radical. And over time, the religious leader says, this has to stop. And the religious leader started accusing him of being from Satan. He must be from Satan. His, his teaching and, and ministry is so different. This can't be of God. It must be from the devil. And then not too long after that, they said, he's got to be put to death. And they conspired to murder him. That's how strange and different the ministry of Jesus was. And it's still strange and different today. It is. And I think it starts with the humility of Jesus. Jesus was humble. And, and as a religious leader, we can't overstate how different that was because religious leaders were about sort of building these communities of influence and power. And so there were different schools of the faith during the time of Jesus and you would really sign up for different rabbinical schools. And the intent was, you know, if you do things right, if you believe the right things and do the right things, you're gonna unlock blessing from God. That was the whole paradigm. Unlock blessing from God because you believe the right things and do the right things and worship the right way. You will be exalted because God will bless your life because you're doing it right. That's what these rabbinical schools were all about. How can we be blessed of God? And if God is gonna bless us, then he's gonna empower us, he's gonna enrich us. It's the whole frame of mind. And Jesus says, you know what? We're gonna turn this upside down. How about we serve our neighbor and love our neighbor? And how about, you know, we, we walk in a community that's humble and gracious and kind? And people were like, uh, no, <laughs> we don't want that. And they turned away from Jesus. It all started with his humility. 
In fact, the only time he describes his own character is in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, where he says, I am gentle, I'm humble and gentle at heart. That's Jesus. I'm humble and gentle at heart. And we might think, well, isn't Jesus the son of God? Fullness of divinity? And we would say, well, doctrinally, yes, he is. So didn't he have the right and the power to be exalted in glory and wealth and fame and power? And the answer is yes, he had that right, but he chose to walk a strange and different path. The way of Jesus is the path to humility. In fact, the cornerstone declaration of the humility of Jesus, I think, is found in the great hymn of the first church in Philippians chapter two, verses six and seven. It says this. Though he was God, the full power of divinity, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. It's a choice. Jesus chose to lay aside his privilege and his power to humbly serve the world around him. Jesus is humble. And not only was Jesus humble, Jesus created a humble learning community. Jesus created a humble learning community. Now that is not how the community originally started. The community that followed Jesus was not about humility at first. In fact, they were drawn to Jesus because Jesus seemingly was rising in power and rising in influence, rising in prominence and rising in glory. So in the early ministries of Jesus, uh, he's out there in the cities and the towns and he's healing and he's preaching these powerful sermons and people are flocking to Jesus by the dozens, then hundreds, then thousands. And so sort of this you know, herd mentality, it's like, wow, his movement is rising. His power is rising, his influence is rising. Maybe if I join this movement, I will rise in power and influence and I might even rise in wealth. So they signed on early because it looked good. And then I love this story. It's one of my favorite stories in the gospels. It's in Matthew 20. The disciples are thinking, this is gonna be good for us. Look at all these people around. Look at all the potential power and privilege and wealth we can amass. Jesus is talking about a new kingdom. Maybe I can kind of snuggle up to the power structure of Jesus and get in on this. And then here's the mom. <laughs> Again, I love this story. Here's the mom of two disciples. And uh, she is just all about power, all about power. And um, so she says this, in your kingdom, Jesus, would you let my two sons kind of come up alongside you to sit in the place of honor one on your right and the other on your left. Now, this is kind of deep into the ministry of Jesus and, and, and this mom, you could talk about a helicopter mom, she's going to the son of God wanting to install her sons as the princes of the kingdom to the right and left of Jesus. Prominence, power, wealth. And it didn't say, doesn't say what Jesus said to her directly, but he calls the whole crew and he says, we've got to kind of straighten some things out. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. Jesus says that's the normal path. The normal path is privilege, power, wealth, prominence. And everybody's kind of doling out that privilege and seeking that privilege. Jesus says that's the normal way. But among you, it will be what? Difference. In our community, it will be different. 
Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be a servant. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, King of kings, Lord of lords, I'm choosing not to be served. I'm choosing to serve and to give my life. And I'm telling you, that's the character of a Jesus-centered community. Humility, humility in serving one another. And that's the spirit that powers nights like Friday night. You know, this big top that we experienced on Friday night with 200 special needs kings and queens here enjoying dancing and food and being cared for, treated like they're the center of the world, right? That one enchanted evening, right? That's made possible by people who are here to serve and people who are here to give. Nearly 200 kings and queens, special needs, uh, young men and women, precious in the eyes of God. 300 of their parents and caregivers also being served, right? So for just three hours of their life, they can go next door over here as their precious kids are well cared for and having the time of their lives. The caregivers are next door being fed, enjoying uh, games and prizes, just treated like they're the center of the universe. 450 volunteers made that possible, 8,000 volunteer hours, $27,000 in donations given for that event, plus thousands more in donated goods and services. I mean, that is a community that's humble because, I mean, let's just be clear. What's in it for the volunteers? Are they gonna rise in power because they volunteered on one enchanted evening? Are they gonna rise in prominence? Are they gonna rise in influence? Are they gonna rise in, in, in money? Were they enriched that night? No. Purely for the love of serving people that have no capacity to give them anything. Just for the privilege of serving and the privilege of getting to know someone wonderfully made in the image of God that night. This is beautiful, right? Beautiful. But I wanna be clear about this. Sometimes when you talk about humility in church and serving in church, it is all about what we need to do or are invited to do to give, right? Give time, give energy, give treasure, generosity, generosity, and we point to Jesus, and all this is perfectly understandable and good, right? You point to the humility of Jesus, let's be humble like Jesus. You point to the service of Christ, let's serve the way Jesus served. Totally good, totally appropriate, and a lot of good happens as a result. But what happens if we're in a season of life where we need to be served? That also takes humility, doesn't it? It takes humility to get to a point where we've got to admit, you know what, I think I might need a little help here. And I don't have capacity to give. I don't have capacity to give my time, treasure, talents, energy. I don't have any. I'm in need right now. And to just raise maybe a shy arm and to say, this is the time I just need a little bit of help. That takes humility as well. So this isn't just about a call to be humble and to give. This is also a call to be humble and to say, I think I might need to receive right now. As 2013 was wrapping up, no, 2023. <laughs> As 2023 was, was wrapping up, I had to admit to myself that I was starting to feel some weight just in life, just some weight that I had never felt before. And it wasn't because there was any one big calamity that was happening. Um, my life in 2023, pretty good, right? Great family, great wife, great kids. From any objective measure, how's the church doing? Great school, great rescue mission, great. Just things were going really well and still are, thankfully. 
But there were just little rocks I was taking on my backpack through 2023 that just became heavier. Again, no big calamity, no big crisis, but just some uh, nagging health issues that I had never experienced before. Just a couple of things that I'm just dealing with and still kind of dealing with a little bit. No big deal, just things. And, and there's a little bit of a weight there. Not big, just a little bit of a weight. A couple of good-sized relational disappointments, just, just things, relationship investments that, you know, for years and years, it just were getting sideways. A couple more rocks in the backpack, just feeling a little bit heavier. Um, an extended family matter that got pretty significant and is ongoing now. Just, you know, another weight. So not one thing, just a series of mid-sized weights that were starting to kind of feel a certain way. Um, I chose this year to go back to school, and I don't know if I regret that or not, but I'm kind of deep into school, and I'm with all these young tech natives, hot shots, and they're all these brilliant kids, and, but I've always wanted to kind of get this degree, and I thought, well, now's the time to, to do it, and so I, I'm doing that. Just again, mid-sized weights, and by the end of 2023, I had to admit, first to myself, I'm not feeling great, and I think I need to start admitting that to a couple of people. So I admitted that to my wife. I think it's the first time I've talked to her and said, hey, I'm not really doing 100% right now. Uh, and then I admitted that to a few close friends. And then I admitted that to our pastoral team on a Tuesday, just, just admitting I'm not doing great. Not a calamity, no big things are coming. But it took a lot for me to admit that because I don't want to admit that. I don't want to project that. I want to project I got it all together. I can handle anything, right? That's what I wanna be. But that is really coming from a point of arrogance because I wanna project something to the world, right? And at some point that may not be the reality. And we just need to be humble. Not just the humility to serve, but sometimes the humility to be served. And then I was kind of awakened to the reality that Jesus himself at times wanted and needed to be served. Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, Savior, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, on several instances admitted he needed to be served. There's this great little interaction in Mark 14. There's actually two interactions in Mark 14. Now in Mark 14, Jesus is facing the struggle of all time, the cross. And this isn't just a cross that Romans used to kill dissidents, this is the cross. This is bearing the brokenness and the sin of the world on the body of Jesus as the brokenness of the world surrounds and crushes the perfect son of God. He's facing the cross and he's struggling. And he's just having dinner in Mark chapter 14. And while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. You know what essence of nard is? I have no idea, so I looked it up. <laughs> essence of nard, and uh, nard doesn't sound great. Uh, so rhymes with lard, I'm thinking this can't be good. So I, <laughs> I looked up essence of nard. It's actually an oil from a root. It smells awful. It is this pungent, awful, like God-awful scent. To our point of view, if somebody gave you nard, you would think they were their worst, you were their worst enemy, and it was a chemical terrorist attack. It's horrific. 2,000 years ago, they thought it was the sweetest smell in all the world. So it's this oil, this essence of nard that is, was very expensive at the time. 
And if you open the jar or break the jar, it reeks the entire house up for days. You put it on a human body, it reeks that body for days, right? Very, very expensive, very powerful stuff. Woman Kim comes in, opens this essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over the head of Jesus. This was a sign of honor. It was a sign of serving Jesus. Somewhere in this story, and we don't know exactly what the motivation of this woman was, but she was there to honor Jesus with very expensive perfume that would fill the house with this aroma and Jesus would carry with him for four days nearly all the way to the cross. And the whole place kind of erupted. What are you doing? You know, this is Jesus. He's the savior. He doesn't need to be served. You can use that perfume and, and do something else with it, right? Not to honor Jesus. He doesn't need this right now. And Jesus says, I actually do. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing? In that moment, Jesus needed a good thing done to him. And he let her serve him in that way. And then later in Mark chapter 14, things are getting really dicey. The cross is coming. The arrest of Christ is coming. The torture of Jesus is coming. Jesus knows it. So he takes Peter, James, and John with him. And he became deeply troubled and distressed. This is Jesus, deeply troubled and distressed. He brings his three best friends with him and he says, stay with me. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. This is Jesus having the humility not to just serve the world around him incessantly, which he did, but the humility to say, I'm in need of help right now. He calls three of his best friends together to help him, to pray with him, to stay there with him and keep watch with him. The strange way of Jesus is the strange way of humility. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our church community here? I think it means a few things. First, an increased uh, diversity as a learning community. An increasingly diverse learning community. As we talked about in our panel this morning, it really does need to be intentional because a church community almost always defaults towards sameness. Because again, faith is kind of wrapped in with culture, faith is wrapped in with family experience, and so it's very normal for a faith community to be homogenous. So we've gotta to continue to do work at the leadership level, three board members here and many more in leadership, diverse community of faith learning from each other. That's gotta to continue to be our story. And increased ethnic diversity and cultural diversity. Uh, to be wonderfully excited about an increase in political diversity, right? Republicans and Democrats working together and being together and partnering together in one church. I'm telling you, it's not only possible, it is our reality. We have Republicans here and Democrats here, all in one church. And we don't have to know where we stand politically, because frankly, we don't really care. We'll talk about that a week from, a week from today at our Sunday seminar. Um, we have people from religious conservative backgrounds and people from progressive um, religious, see, religious conservative backgrounds and religious progressive backgrounds. We have people here from all over the spectrum, different life experiences, different economies, different cultures. And I wanna be clear, everyone is welcome here without exception to learn from each other and to grow together as a family of faith. This is so critically important because it is the teaching of Jesus. As Howard mentioned earlier, 
When Jesus says, love your neighbor, Jesus defined it as a diverse community of friends, getting to know each other and serving each other. It's also what's expressed in Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians one talks about the ministry of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Ephesians two is a vision for what it means. And what it means is a diverse church learning to love each other. Learning to love each other. Ephesians 2.14, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. This is about ethnic division, Jews and Gentiles. Christ brought peace between Jews and Gentiles as one people. In his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Wherever there are racial, ethnic, even political divisions, religious divisions, the body of Christ, by the service of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the love of Christ, brings us together. Let's keep living into this intentional vision of diversity. And then also having the humility to say, you know what, we don't know it all. We don't know it all. You will never hear these words around Rancho. Well, God told me this, and God is leading me here. You will not hear those words at Rancho. It's not because we're judging anybody who says it, it's just that's not our vibe. Because if, if I told you, hey, God told me this, what does that mean? I'm super special because God speaks directly to me. And by the way, I'm not open to conversation because God told me, what are you gonna say to that, right? That's not our learning community. And so we wanna be a humble learning community, which means, hey, here's maybe an opinion, here's a perspective. And you have an opinion and you have a perspective. But I don't claim to have all the right answers. I hope you don't claim to, write it, to have all the right answers. You definitely don't have all the right answers. We just kind of operate with a sense of humility. We're a learning community. That's why I think in James chapter three, uh, James says this. Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church. Indeed, we all make many mistakes. <laughs> so if we all go around saying, hey, listen, oh, I got the right answer and I got the right answer and God told me this and God let me hear and I'm gonna lead, lead, lead. James says, be careful and be humble because we all make mistakes and so let's be a humble learning community. And if, if somebody rises up to be a teacher, fantastic, but let's take great care in that. And when you teach, teach with humility. No one has the right answers. So what you're here around Rancho often is, hey, um, here's a perspective, think about it. Other, here's another perspective. We do a lot of classes on different views. Here are the four views of this and four views of this. For some reason, there's always four views. I don't know how that, but it's a discussion starter. You'll often hear around here, hey, listen, you got the Bible study for yourself. You got a brain study for yourself. Feel free to disagree, right? So there's no one person or no one board or one committee that has the authoritative answer on much, right? We don't know it all. I love 1 Corinthians 8. This is, to me, this is hysterical. May not be to you. While knowledge makes us feel important, and that is sarcasm at its finest, while knowledge makes us feel important, in other words, you're not important, you just feel like it, it's love that strengthens the church. Knowledge or love, Jesus chooses love. But knowledge puffs up, oh, I'm real important, I know it, God told me this, the Bible says it, and, and, and so I believe it. In other words, I know what the Bible says. Oh, you know what the Bible says. Um, do you know the context that the Bible was written in 2,000 years ago? Blah, 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 blah. Do you know the language that the Bible was written to? Blah, 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 blah. I, so you're reading this in English in some translation that may or may not be closely aligned with the original, and now you know it all? You've, got, you've nailed Bible interpretation, right? Because that's your opinion in any given moment. And I know I sound kind of sarcastic about it because I was that person who thought he knew it all. 
I mean, when I was 18 years old, I had the Bible nailed. <laughs> nailed. I mean, this young religious zealot, right, who in high school had all the answers. Why? Because I read all the books from this little cluster of people and all the cassette tapes of these sermons. You know what a cassette tape is? It's just this. So I had it all dialed in. I thought I knew it all. And as an 18-year-old snot-nosed kid, I'm judging all these pastors and scholars. I mean, it's kind of funny. And then I got to realize, hey, I'm just reading and listening to the same people in the same cluster. There's a whole world out there that I started, you know, learning from and communities of people started learning and reading and this wide open world. And the more you study and the more you, you know, read and learn from each other, the less you really know you know, right? That's why I love this. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. There's an inverse relationship between what someone thinks they know and what they know. That's what this is saying. And so let's be a, a learning community, right? Uh, also, let's resist positional power. Um, church communities can tend to say, oh, there's a pastor, lead pastor, pastor this, pastor this, elder this, deacon this, and, and we're just trying to say, hey, let's forget the titles. Jesus himself said, let no one call you rabbi. Let's ditch the titles. Let no one call you by an, a name or a title that gives you the impression you're more important than anybody else, right? Um, so, you know, we don't kind of hard resist the pastor title. We just don't call each other pastor very much, uh, if at all, um, mainly to just, like with Tiffany, she's the pastor who serves middle school ministry. She's not pastor. She doesn't walk around with a name tag, Pastor Tiffany, right? Because none of us are any more important than anybody else. I don't call you Engineer Sam, right? If you want to be called Engineer Sam, that's great. I'll respect that. But, you know, let's, we just don't need to call each other by our vocational, you know, jobs. And Jesus said much the same thing. Lastly, before we take communion, and there's a lot going on today. We are a center-set church. Center-set church. Now, what does center-set mean? There's a center-set and then there's a bounded-set. Let me show you what bounded-set looks like. Here's what bounded-set looks like. These cattle are in a fence. They're bound by a fence. That's bounded set, meaning that we're a community that all believes the same stuff, probably come, all come from roughly the same background, might even live roughly in the same neighborhood, but we kind of share the same story. And we're all walking kind of in lockstep. Like, I follow that pastor's teaching. I follow this doctrinal statement, right? This is who I am, and this is who we are, there's a lot of rules. We worship this way. We all believe this way. We all kind of have the same culture, right? It's about the same thing because of the fence in which we are bound, right? Lots of religious communities operate as a bounded set, and some people love that. It tends to be a bunch of the same kind of, you know, cattle and the same kind of fence, right? Then there's a center set, a center set. Uh, a center set is a wide open, free range, right? pasture everywhere, no fences at all, but there is a watering hole that we're attracted to. There's life there that we're attracted to. And there are cows there from all walks of life, right? And, but we're drawn to the center. We're drawn to the water. Now, the water isn't a vast list of doctrines. The water isn't, hey, we worship the right way and all believe the right things, right? It's just a, a, a few things that give life to a diverse group. That's the center set. And at Rancho, the center set is so simple. Jesus-centered, grace-based, humanitarian. 
I'm not saying any of this to say we are right. I'm not saying any of this to say anybody else is wrong. I'm just saying there are different cultures and different communities for you know, different kind of you know, ways of following Jesus. The center set concept is so freeing in my mind because a center set based on a few things we are trying our best to teach what Jesus taught and do what Jesus did. Just trying our best with all the flaws that come along with our efforts. Trying to draw the world to Jesus. Grace-based. This is not about what we do for God. Believing the right things, doing the right things, worshiping the right way. It's not about that at all. It's about everything that God has done for us by his grace to love us as he finds us. To just never see our faults and flaws and failures. He doesn't see our sin. He only sees his perfect child. These are the kinds of things that draw people to life. And then to say, if God is so good to us, why not be good to the world around us, right? To love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the center set. For us, this is what humility means. And all of that is founded on the humility of Jesus. The humility of Jesus. Because if we were to go sort of back to that John chapter six controversy, where people were accusing Jesus of being very strange and they started leaving Jesus, it was based on his teaching that he is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. And that really confused people because Jesus was really preparing the world and preparing his followers for his own body to be a sacrifice, for his own body and his own blood to be broken and shed because of the sin of the world, the evil of this world would crush the perfect son of God. And that he would walk that journey in humility, but then he would rise again on the third day to bring new life to this world. It is centered on Jesus, the humility of Jesus that resulted in the sacrifice, even of his own life. And so if you have your communion cups, uh, take the bread at the bottom of the cup, and if you don't have it, you can uh, raise your hands and somebody will bring you a communion cup. But hours before the, the crucifixion of Jesus, he shared a meal with his disciples. And that meal with his disciples included the bread. And he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my body broken for you. I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life. The brokenness of this world and the evil of this world is, is going to create this brutal reality. I will be crushed. The light of heaven will be crushed. The body of Christ will be broken to show love and humility to the world. Take it and eat it in remembrance of Christ. Then Jesus took the wine of that Passover meal and he said, this is a symbol of my blood which will be shed for you. The evil and the sin of this world will crush me, but I came to walk a journey of humility and he gave himself to that. He sacrificed himself for us to demonstrate the love of God. He says, this is who I am and this is who you can become as well a community that embraces humility, a community that embraces sacrifice, a community that serves the world around, around you. Take this and drink in remembrance of Jesus. God, we thank you for Jesus. Son of God, son of man, full divinity and full humanity, doing only what you showed him to do, teaching 
what you showed him to teach. And he reveals the gentleness and the kindness and the humility of your heart towards us. You are God, you, all, you are almighty, you are maker of heaven and earth. But yet you exist to humbly serve us, fallen, broken humanity. But you, we are the crown of your creation made in your image and you wanna see us thrive. You wanna see us move beyond our hatred and beyond our suffering that we inflict on one another. You want us to pursue the life of Christ, a life of service and a life of humility. The humility not to just serve the world around us, but the humility every once in a while to admit that we need to be served and that we're struggling and to graciously care for each other in gentleness and kindness. We receive the humble love of Christ and let us share that with the world around us. In his name we pray, amen.